What is going on, ladies and gentlemen? Thank you so much for tuning in to the Big Honker Podcast. We appreciate you downloading and listening to these episodes. It really means a lot to us. So go to iTunes, leave us some reviews, let us know what you think of the show. Uh, those are always a lot of fun to read. Head over to iTunes, do that right now. This podcast is brought to you by Stanfield Hunting Outfitters. We've been in business a while, Ron. Yes, sir. We come out here and just tailgating out of the parking lots is what they did to start with. <laughs> Turned it into a full-fledged business. Yes, sir. Started out just goose hunting. Now we got goose, duck, dove, pheasants, well, can, pigs. Can't believe the way it's grown. And when they started, I didn't really know that it could be like that. <laughs> Here we are today. So if you're looking for that uh, that fall adventure, look no further, 940-658-3172. That's our phone number. You can get on the books for this year. We're still taking bookings for goose and duck hunts. Give us a call. You could even come out here and do a pheasant hunt with uh, O'Ron here. So www.stanfieldhunting.com. This podcast is also brought to you by Dive Bomb Industries. Best silhouette on the market. Yes, sir. You've hunted over a lot of them. I'll tell you what, I... They're amazing. That's another company that just, you know, just blew up. Oh, I'll tell you what, they're, they're they're great guys, great service. Can't get better service than what you get from them. And the decoys work, and they're beautiful and lifelike. The stake system is what I love the most. I know, and that's the first criticism I had when I saw one. I said, <laughs> that'll never work. That thing won't stand up in the sand but they sure do they sure fool me stakes come in from the top that way when you pull them out of the sand or the muck or the mud whatever you're hunting them in the stakes stay in place unlike uh some other companies who stake system was just a pain in the ass oh yeah the wooden plastic deals was a pain boy they look great they pack up nice dive bomb industries the way to go call them look them up online look them up on instagram dive bomb industries get whatever you're needing for this upcoming waterfowl season because it's here basically a lot of guys are already hunting. Also, we're brought to you by Boss Shot Shells. Bismuth is back in style. The boys are making a kick-ass load. Well, stuff will bring them to the ground. I tell you what, you just got to hit them one time. 12-gauge, 20-gauge, they make special loads. You call the people at Boss, email them. They will make you pretty much whatever you want. They'll custom custom make your load for you. Well, it's good service there, too. And like I said, it's right to your front door. No more big box stores. They go right to your front door, so you know that you're paying a rock bottom price. Uh, you're gonna shoot the twenty gauge this year, huh? Oh, I, I shoot the twenty gauge a lot anyway. But yeah, do that with bismuth, and you knock the hell out of them. So, BossShotShells.com for all of your shotgun shell needs. We're also brought to you by Seven Thirty Seven, the boys in Oklahoma making duck calls for all across America. Great duck call, works yeah. great. Sound good, man. Even Jeff can use it. That's how you know That's it passes right. the, the user-friendly test. And they're beautiful. Beautiful. You can put your put your logo on them. We've got some here with our logo on them. 737 duck calls, and they can hook you up for – they sell goose calls too, so whatever you're needing. They, they work great. Handy and Zach both, they, well, they sound good. Now, did you teach Jeff how to duck call, or he just picked that up? Well, I don't know. <laughs> If you'd had a 737, it would have been a lot easier. That's right. You're right. We're also brought to you by Lucky Duck. You, If you're going to field duck hunt this winter, you're going to need uh, spinners. Look no further. LuckyDuck.com, and they can they can send you however many you need. I say you need at least a half dozen spinners if you're going to have a successful field hunt. I'll tell you what, it's amazing to watch them when you get them remotes going. And We had a hunt, the last hunt of the season, we killed about 50 birds in an hour with a whole – we had – half the town out there in a blind. 
I, I had my son, two sons, three grandsons, one great-grandson, and a granddaughter. And, and a dog that you produced. And a dog that I trained and then produced, and then about ten more friends was out there, and we we hammered them. Boy. Just got all those lucky ducks going and let it, let them eat. Those, those ducks will key in on that, create a lot of motion, which is what you see on a duck feed. And uh, lucky ducks work. Get the ones with the remotes. Get the ones that are waterproof if you find yourself hunting over water. And uh, your worries will be no more. So luckyduck.com for all of your motion spinning wing needs. Uh, We're also brought to you by Sea Light LEDs. There's no more sense. There's no sense at all to set a decoy spread out in the dark. Modern technology. put Put these lights everywhere. Put them on your truck, on your trailer. Light it up. Turn that switch on and light that puppy up. That way you can see exactly what you're doing. No more. That's, you know, that's the number one cause of breaking your decoys is tripping over. Turn on those lights. You're saving decoys that way. Think of it that way. Saving your investment. SeaLightLEDs.com. They're what we use. And this show is also brought to you by Athlon Optics. Also a U.S. made. Athlon Optics is a proud U.S. sports optic product company devoted to designing and delivering superior quality optic products and outdoor accessories at a competitive price to you, the consumer. Athlon has strong engineering design capability, strategic alliances with quality manufacturers, and a streamlined, fully integrated supply chain. Whether you're shooting prairie dogs or scouting those geese or ducks the night before, Athlon Optics has a product that you need. So go to athlonoptics.com, get your binoculars, get your scopes. They've also got red dot sights. They got it all. If you need to look through it so you can shoot something or find something, Athlon Optics is the way to go. We're also brought to you by William and Chris Wines. Ron, you're a former wine drinker. Yeah, I've had my share in the past. <laughs> you you were a sweet guy. You you liked the, the sweet drinks, didn't you? Yeah, yeah, I love that old sweet stuff. But anyway, they won't let me drink anymore. <laughs> you made that decision a long time ago. But, yeah, C- William Chris, uh, great wines, Texas-made wines. Uh, I like the red personally. The Skeleton Key is really popular. You can find them at HEB Whole Food Central Markets, uh, all those upstanding supermarkets. You can find William and Chris Wines, or you can go to their website and try to get it shipped to you. But William and Chris Wines, uh, you, you, you won't be disappointed. Okay, this episode of the podcast, we're joined by photographer, waterfowl photographer, Ted Wells. If you're on Instagram and you're a waterfowl hunter, I am assuming that you have uh, seen some of Ted Wells' work. It's fascinating. The man is truly, truly gifted. Um, But yeah, go to his Instagram, T. Wells Image, and I mean, he just does outstanding work, everything that he does, so... Interesting podcast. We enjoy talking to him. We really appreciate him coming on, and uh, this was a fun one. So here he is, Ted Wells. Okay, here we go. Three, 
two, one. Boom, and welcome to the Big Honker Podcast brought to you by Dive Bomb Industries. I'm Jeff Stanfield. I'm Andy Shaver. We got uh, we got a treat for you today. We've got Mr. Ted Wells on the phone today. Uh, I'm sure if you're on Instagram, you've seen Ted Wells. Ted, how are you doing? Doing good. Thanks for having me on, guys. We're excited to have you. Instagram famous. What I mean, my goodness, 41,000 followers. Insane that, that many people, that you've got that kind of people just looking at your shit all the time. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't know how important that is, but... Eh, you know, it's, it's, it's uh, a status symbol. <clears throat> Well, well, thanks, I suppose. <laughs> well, how, how was the teal hunting this weekend? Oh, man, it was a ton of fun. It always is. I went down last year um, shooting for quack rack. Um, and they kind of assemble a, quite a crew every year for that teal weekend. And uh, This year was more of the same, but it was a little thinner, but that doesn't really matter. Um, yeah, it's, it's a hoot, I tell you. There's a lot of good people that join, and... You know, you go out and hunt for an hour, hour and a half in the morning and shoot skeet all day and hang out with your pals and do it all over again. Now, was it wet down there? Was you in all the rain? No. So we flew in. Uh, I flew down with Kevin Stevens from Sitka Gear. He and I went down together on last Wednesday. And I started seeing that weather come through early last week, and I was kind of getting worried. And, um, you know, getting up towards the flight i was kind of wondering if we were even going to get into houston and our flights were an absolute disaster all the way down and i mean we it was the most beautiful morning in bozeman i've ever seen we pull out of the gate on time and we sat on the tarmac for over an hour for no reason so our connection in denver we had five minutes had to sprint to the next plane barely got on it and then we only ended up being like 15 minutes late into Houston, which was great. And it was pouring rain. Um, but we went uh, west and south, so we kind of got out of it. And the weather was, you know, minus a few quick downpours in El Campo. We had awesome weather. Now, is that where you did the teal hunting, was in El, El Campo? Yep. Yep. What guide service did y'all hunt with down there? Uh, we stay at uh, the Lifetime Decoys Hotel in providence city so there's a big kind of a plantation style building and we just kind of freelance it really you know it's crazy but that area down there 30 years ago was the place to go to shoot waterfowl in the united states yeah i heard that garrett walker told me about that he said i mean the snow goose migration and everything that used to come through there was just unbelievable Mm mm-hmm I hunted there like 1990-91, and there was probably 2 million, 3 million snow geese down there, and that's where everybody would go. And when I first got in the hunting business, which was in the early 90s, all my competition to get guys to come hunt here was either go to South Texas or come here. And that's not even really South Texas, but that's what we called South Texas. But you either went to the Houston area, or you, and that was where I had to get all my customers from. You know, if you want to go yep. shoot snow geese, you want to shoot dark geese. And their big selling point at that time was you could shoot 10, 10 light geese or come up here and shoot yep. three three dark geese. But that was the place to go. And you'd go there. used to have a little cafe there. And I can't remember the name of it. It was next to Johnny Sportsman's. And I don't even know if Johnny Sportsman's is down there. That was like an outdoor place. But it's one place you'd go to. you go at 3 o'clock in the morning or 4 o'clock in the morning. And there was 200 guys in there buying camo and shells and license. 
just a whole neat ambiance to the place. Yeah, it's a cool area. I mean, it's totally different than what I'm used to, obviously. (laughs) Um, Yeah, it's it's beautiful. I mean, it has its own beauty, you know, down there. I like it a lot. Well, you weren't but 100 miles away from getting in a bunch of rain, because I kept watching after we'd set this up. I saw the weather, and I thought, boy, it depends where he's hunting at down there. But, boy, if you were around Beaumont, it was horrible. Yeah, we we had it on the TV outside in the pavilion, the Weather Channel, most of the day on Thursday. And, man, I mean, it was gorgeous. I mean, it was 95 degrees and sunny where we were at, and Houston was just getting pounded. My uh, my uncle had a meeting in Houston. So he lives in a small town next to us, and he went all the way to Houston for this meeting, and then they call him when he's in his hotel room. He's like, oh, we're just going to do it all online, so just stay in your hotel. Don't worry about getting out. And he's like, <laughs> what the fuck? <laughs> I drove seven and a half hours to get here. And now I, I'm doing the exact same thing I could have done on my laptop at home. Mm-hmm. So been there before. Yeah, I'm sure you have. So how were the teal? Was, was it big flocks, uh, singles and doubles? How was the teal hunting? No, the hunting itself was pretty slow. I mean, we had we had two or three good bunches on the first morning, um, and then I think we killed eight or ten on the first morning, and then the second morning uh, was the was the actual hunt crew. Um, the boys from Falco joined us, and uh, Ryan Bassam from Sitka rolled in at, God, he rolled in at 3.45. We had our alarm set at 4, and I walked past his room. I said, did you just get here? And he says, yeah, I <laughs> literally just walked in. I said, you going hunting? And he goes, you're damn right I'm going hunting. I'm like, my man. Yeah. So he, uh, so he joined us. We had gosh, 10 or 11 guns, and had a couple pairs and a couple singles and then two decent groups and killed 16 or 18 that morning. And that wasn't constant flow of birds. Like, you know, it was last year was I mean, super busy. We were shooting a ton last year, but this year is a little bit slower. See, that's the way I it was I don't think here. they've gotten there yet. No, I don't think so either. That's the way it was here for, for our first weekend. Um, <clears throat> I kept trying to think how many. So first day I had seven or eight guys. <clears throat> anyway. Same as you. Two or three nice, nice sized flocks, and then like the rest was just like singles, doubles, and triples mainly. Yeah. But like it, we never seemed to like get that steady wave of uh, mm-hmm. bigger bunches of teal. It was, it was like you said, couple, couple good groups, and then the rest we just kind of chipped away at them. Yep. But yeah, real similar. <laughs> a lot of fun. But I don't think that I'm like you. I don't think that they're here yet. We, we've got a puddle no. next to the lodge. It, we had four inches of rain here Sunday night at the lodge, and there's some flooded wheat stubble right by the by the lodge. It's on the road. It's an indicator pond. If you, there's ducks on it, it means you got ducks. There's two or three hundred teal on it now, and those ducks are brand new ducks have just showed up. So yeah. we finally got some, but we have not had a. It's been a horrible teal season by standards, the statewide. Kind of like the dove hunting has been bad this year. Yeah, it seems like towards uh, Saturday and Sunday they started to show up in a little better numbers. A few of the guides that you know were kicking in updates had start started killing them pretty good on Saturday or Sunday, but we just never got anything. Now you're in Montana. You're expecting some cold weather here in the next couple of days, aren't you? Is it going to make it yeah. far west? <clears throat> yep. Yeah, it's not going to be too bad through the weekend. Our season actually opens on Saturday, so we're getting geared up to start here. Um, I think Monday it's supposed to get a high of 34 and a low of 20 with snow. Well, sure, I'm jealous. 
So that should push some fresh birds down. Normally we don't get a we don't get a good cold snap like that this early, so it'll be interesting to see what it does. Yeah. It'll either blow everything we have out or we'll get loaded up. Now do you have a lot around you right now? Uh there's pretty decent numbers. We're on two or three different options for the opener, but I mean it, it this is early season birds for us. I mean shit, you never know when they're gonna I mean we have one field they've been in for Kevin looks at it on his way to work every day and they've been in there for four or five days and it's the biggest feed in the valley for sure. Um, but who knows? I mean, shit, they could be gone tomorrow. Yeah. Well, that's got to be nice, sitting on them for four or five days and then just sneak in there opening day and just let her mm-hmm. Oh, Should be good if they stick around. What kind of field is it? Uh, barley. Barley. How are you going to yeah, hunt them? Layouts or A-frames? Uh, well, we're still figuring that out. we got to walk in, so which doesn't really matter. We can carry whatever, but... We'll probably do two A-frames and just cover them as much barley as we can get. What, what's There's your, a high spot right in the middle of the field that looks a little longer than the rest, so that's probably what we'll do. What's your limit up there? Uh, four geese and seven ducks. Well, the seven ducks will be awesome. Yep. You, you got a lot of yeah. green heads there right now? Uh, I mean, we got a, a lot of mallard ducks, but their heads aren't green. <laughs> <laughs> Everything's brown. That, that, that makes it tough this time of year. Yeah. So yeah, they. I mean, they'll change mid October and we'll start getting into some green heads for sure. So, how did you get started? Were you always uh, grew up with a camera in your hand, or how did you how did you make your first leap into this? Um. No, I I actually bought my first camera shit five five and a half years ago, probably. Um, <clears throat> I actually have a master's degree in sports medicine. So out of college, I got um, a head athletic trainer job at a college here in Montana. So I did that for seven years out of school. And then um, wife and I had our daughter. She's seven years old now. But my schedule was ridiculous. I was in charge of, in the neighborhood of 350 college athletes. Mm. So it was a stressful job. And the hours were, you know, every day was at least 10 hours, if not 14 and uh, it was over in Billings, and, you know, it's kind of the big city, Montana, and it's, it's awesome hunting over there. Everything's great outdoors-wise, but, man, I just we got to the point where I was kind of getting that seven-year itch, getting pretty burnt out. My daughter was, you know, young, and she was about to go to kindergarten, and and uh, I took pictures for probably well, a couple of years when I was in Billings and had a lot of success and had a lot of work that I could have taken, but it prevented me to, you know, my schedule in my actual job, just, I couldn't, I couldn't travel or I couldn't get out. And, and so I finally said, fuck it, I'm going to, let's go. Yeah. So we, uh, we pulled, moved to Bozeman. Uh, my wife is a nurse, so she, um, she kept her job in Billings and actually commuted for a little over two years. It's about 140 miles and she would go she worked three days a week, three twelves. Yeah. So she did that for two years, and then, um, you know, got sick of the travel and the roads in the winter were are always shit going that way. <laughs> so she just took a job in town at the pedi- pediatrician clinic, which she's loving. It's three minutes from the house, and it's awesome. And so, yeah, really, when we got to Bozeman is really when I started getting aggressive. I had to. I mean, it was something I was going to make money off of. I had to get my shit together 
and uh, that's where we're at now. Yeah, I've been loving it. So you said this was a, this was a small school uh, that you were the the trainer for. Yeah, it's an NAIA Frontier Conference school. So a private college. When when you, when you say that, like you were for football, basketball, baseball, everything. I, yeah, I had one assistant, and then I had three, well, three to five um, master's program students that would come help. Uh-huh. But, yeah, we covered everything. So I took football. I can't stand soccer, so I gave that to my assistant. <laughs> Amen, brother. So I, fuck, no way I can do that. <laughs> so we, we kind of tag-teamed volleyball, and, I mean, there was so many fall sports, so we just split it up as much as we could. But, I mean, my focus was football. Yeah. It had to be. I mean, that's the busiest thing, you know. So. Right. Yeah, you want the head guy to be kind of in charge of the big deal. The big. Sport. Yeah, I mean, I'm a football guy, so yeah, it makes sense. So, so all the games you go to, all the practices you're at, and then I guess Everything. you do the rehab afterwards. Yep, you're covering every training session, pool rehab, all the ACL rehab, all the practices on the field. All the practices off the field, home and away games, My doctor's visits, oh. clinic visits. It's a shit show. So <laughs> have you, did you ever run into a situation where the doctor says one thing and, and do the doctors recommend a rehab program or they say, hey, this is what's wrong with you, tell your, tell your guy, and then you set that up? Yeah, I would pretty much. So I actually didn't work for the school. I worked for a company called Athletic Medicine and Performance in Ortho, Montana. So it's an actual orthopedic hospital uh-huh. clinic. So that's who I was employed by. So I always had, you know, a doctor for whatever I needed, whether it's hand, spine, foot, ankle, whatever. And I could always consult pretty directly. Right. And, you know, in the first couple of years, I was I would, you know, play it safe and, and really dial in what the doctors needed. But I got to a certain point where I pretty much knew all the protocol and really didn't have to worry about that much. What's the nastiest injury that you saw? Oh, man. Tons of nasty knee injuries, Ooh. bones hanging out, fingers Ooh. going sideways. It's the normal stuff. Bones, College football stuff. Bones hanging out, huh? Oh, yeah. Oh, I couldn't do it. Yeah, there's a there's a <laughs> local kid here. He's a uh, a junior. Tore his ACL his sophomore year, and he got an infection in his knee, and it ate away everything that the doctor did. So they had to go back in. First they had to fix the infection, then they had to go back in, redo the entire surgery, and then that didn't take somehow, and then he had another ACL surgery. So the doctors finally clear him in August, and he twists funny in the weight room and pops it again. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So he's going on his yeah. I've been through that kind of deal with several athletes. It's it's sad, really. Fourth or fifth knee yeah, surgery in eleven months for a seventeen-year-old kid. Yeah, that's that's when you got to have the conversation of this just isn't the right thing for you to be doing anymore. Yeah, I think they just had that. I, you know, I've had those conversations and they're not easy. Um. Yeah, they're going to a new doctor now for for this new for this uh, other surgery, and he told him like, listen. If you've got any inkling that you might want to play football again, you need to have a very, very uh, honest conversation with yourself. He said, right now, I'm just trying to get it to where you can have a normal life. Yeah. Yeah, and that's, you know, you have to put where they're at in perspective. Like at our college, you know, we had a lot of incredible athletes on the football field. And, you know, we've had a few guys have NFL tryouts, and it's a pretty high level of football for Montana. And, 
<laughs> but you know, for the most part, it's like, you know, you've got the rest of your life ahead of you. Right. This is four years. I mean, don't, you know, don't do something dumb that's going to affect the rest of your life and having kids and chasing kids and doing shit that actually matters. Right. You know? So. Yeah. What did you see uh, with the with the concussion protocol? Was that, you know, seven years ago? I mean, it, it, had, it had, had to have changed quite a bit in the seven years since you've been doing it. Yeah, you know, we I was lucky to have kind of a regional concussion specialist that actually worked for Ortho Montana. And he's actually really one of my really close friends and still is. I we go hunting together all the time, goose hunting and stuff and and so, you know, there was a pretty strong plan in place as far as like impact testing and baselines and things like that for every single athlete and uh you know, we it, it never really changed for me. Obviously, the technology and the helmets and everything changed a lot, and I would always push for and budget for, you know, the newer, nicer stuff just to try and prevent them. But, you know, the fact of the matter is there isn't a helmet on Earth that prevents concussions. Yeah. It just doesn't fucking work. Yeah. And so it's all in the baseline testing, you know, when the athlete is, quote-unquote, healthy preseason, and then following up if there is a, an injury and then taking enough time and making the right decisions before he put him back on the field. So really, it didn't change a lot while I was there, to be honest. Um, but I was lucky to have a pretty aggressive protocol in place, plus a regional guy that was, you know, really good at it. So what do you do? You just wait for the you just wait for the symptoms to go away, and then that's when they get cleared to go back for physical contact. Um, yeah, so our protocol was a little bit lengthier than the standard stuff. Um, we would wait for um, the impact test to go back to normal baseline. And then we would start like a four to five day protocol return to play. So you'd start with like a one mile run and then you'd monitor the athlete for 15 minutes afterwards. No symptoms. Okay, then they can move on to day two. Day two would be like a super strenuous workout where they're changing direction, going up and down, burpees, just like trying to make them get a headache, trying to make the symptoms come out. Yeah. So if they pass through that, you move them into a non-contact practice. You put them in a bright orange jersey, no helmet, no pads, and they can go through drills, non-contact drills, make it through that. Then they can go into a full practice, non-contact with pads and a helmet, make it through that, and then you clear them. Huh. So, so it would usually take a couple weeks at least. Right. So I, I is the brain swollen at this stage? Like like does does the concussion completely heal or what happens in this phase that that lets them get back on the field? I guess what I'm um, I guess what I'm trying to get at is when they're still having symptoms, are they more susceptible to another concussion than they are um yes, a week sure. or two after? Yes, for sure. If they're symptomatic at any time during that protocol there, I don't know the exact numbers of the research, you know, the actual numbers behind it, but they're 10 times more likely to, to receive another concussion if they took a hit to the head, if they're still symptomatic to begin with. Huh. The biggest so we were always real careful to make sure all that shit was gone before we even started to put them around other people, really, yeah. on the field. The biggest problem in it, in the whole thing is, is if you watch a film from the 50s and 60s, guys tackled different back then than they do now. I think what you need to do is take the damn face mask off the helmets and people will quit tackling with their face all, helmet or their head all the time. 
But you watch 50s and 60s and guys form tackled. Now they, they throw their body out like it's a fucking missile. And that's the problem. Well, the issue is, is nobody practices, nobody tackles in practice. Anymore. Well, that that's true also. Yeah, that's the problem. Nobody hits each other during the week and then you get to a game and they're like, holy shit. Right. You know? Our high school football po- coach practiced tackling every day except maybe Thursday. Yeah. Yeah, I played college ball for my dad and we used to beat the shit out of each other all week long. <laughs> the game's a treat. I mean, you're so damn sore by the time the game come around and you're like, Jesus. Where did your dad coach at? Out here. Where'd your dad coach at? Oh, uh, gosh, he's been coaching college ball for over 40 years. Um, he bounced around quite a lot. We followed him around when I was younger a little bit, but he started here at Carroll College in Helena, and then we moved to Jamestown, North Dakota, which is really where I started waterfowl hunting when I was like 12. Been there. Yeah, love that place. Um, and then we stayed in North Dakota, and he bounced down and coached a couple years at A&M down in Texas. Wow. Came back up and went to Montana State Northern, uh, way up by the Canadian border up in Haver, and that's where I played for him. So, nope. you, so you lived in the great state of Texas for a while? I, no, we, we stayed in North Dakota. He left and coached. That's a, that's a, my tough, and I stayed. That's a tough gig. I, you know, you look at guys like your dad and – what what is it, Bruce Arians? That's had you know just yeah. twenty jobs in seventeen years. I mean, just east to west, north to south. Tough yeah. gig. That's tough not, gig. That's tough. That's a tough family life. Where did who did he coach under at A and M? I actually have no idea. I can't remember. Long long time ago. So Jamestown. Long freaking time ago. Jamestown is where you is where you started learning how to waterfowl hunt, huh? Yeah. Yeah, the first guy that ever took me waterfowl hunt was actually the athletic trainer at Jamestown College. So it was pretty cool. That's kind of where I, I'm not going to say got introduced to athletic training, but it's funny that I think about it now because I, you know, I still am an athletic trainer, but that was my job for a long time at, you know, the same level of college. And uh, yeah, his name was Mitch Lang. He, I still remember that guy. He was freaking nuts, but <laughs> he took me on our first goose hunt and shot my first goose with my little Remington 870 compact 20 gauge yep we killed one goose that day and i was hooked came right in or what oh no i crushed him on like 60 freaking yards <laughs> 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 and then and then you said you got to figure out how to make them come right in right right yeah we you know our setup that day would not be something we would do today i can tell you that much We've had we've had a lot of different photographers on here, and it's always interesting to hear how they got into the waterfowl and what made them, and has what has made them who they are. And a lot mm-hmm. of them. What what's your favorite waterfowl to shoot? Uh, I would say either greenheads in a cornfield or greenheads on a hot spring. The hot spring. Tell, tell us about that because that's that's something foreign to us. I, mm-hmm. I'm assuming these things keep birds on them all winter long. Then. Yep, yep, they do. They actually they hold more and more as it gets colder. What's what's so the what's the water temperature there? Uh, it's usually about four. Like if it's like twenty below zero or whatever, if it's like real cold late season, we have a hot spring. The water's usually like forty. So it's not like hot, then hot, hot, hot. It's just above, no, it's hot above. comparable to conditions. Right? So no, no, ship. yes, yeah. I didn't yep, know what yep. it, when you say hot springs, how hot the water was. You still don't want to take a bath. Yeah, they're like. 
spring-fed creeks. There's kind of a there's a maze of them that run around Bozeman, and you know the Bozeman area is it's tough to get on something like that because most of them are private and, and guys know what they are, and so it's hard to get on them around here. But there's some south of Billings that are just absolutely ridiculous. And I mean, it's got to be just like a magnet to these ducks. Steam coming off, oh, and yeah, it's wild. Only fucking water in town. It, I mean, it is the only water that's that's truly open. Yeah. Yeah. You gotta be like shooting fish in a barrel. A couple dozen floaters, and away you go. It is. It's shooting ducks. It's not hunting ducks. <laughs> There's yeah, a difference for for sure. <laughs> yeah. Now what? It's, you, it's unbelievable. What y'all season go to Montana? Uh, we open Saturday and we close January 14th, I think. God almighty, that's Jeez. a long ass season. Yeah, super long. When does it get like just unbearably cold to, to be in up there? Um, you know, it depends, but generally, generally in December, first part of December, but actually these last few years, it's been, I had Garrett from Quack Rack up last year and it was like 57 degrees on December 17th, and we were trying to shoot ducks, not really having much luck, because when it gets warm like that, it's tough, but it was like 57 degrees. Yeah, when y'all are hot, it's really bad down here. <laughs> yeah. So what yeah. do the ducks go, do they, do they go nocturnal whenever it warms up like that? Yeah, they just, they switch off, they feed weird, you can never pattern them, and there's plenty of ducks around, but they just, it's like they, it's like they know that, that you're hunting with decoys you know like it's yeah. almost like they fly over and go fucking idiots you know and they just keep flying <laughs> so when it's cold it's like it's weird it's like a switch flips for them and yeah, i don't know but man if, it, if it's warm in december it's going to be a tough one i can sure. imagine so are have you noticed more and more ducks staying in your neck of the woods longer into the winter than when you were say a kid first doing this uh, yeah, we always have pretty good numbers over here and it fluctuates throughout the season. We're like, you know, we're a hundred percent migration dependent yeah. here. We don't have a local population. And so, you know, it kind of ebbs and flows with the weather. Um, but the one thing I have noticed that it's kind of fascinating, and I think I've, you know, I've seen a lot of people say this on the internet that the snows are moving around North Dakota. So like every year I've noticed in Montana, we shoot more and more snow geese in the fall and even, like, a few specks, which we never used to shoot. So I feel like that migration is moving west. Yeah. I'd be kind of curious. Like, last fall, we had a ton of snows come through. And it was weird, because, like, we don't have snow goose decoys. <laughs> so <laughs> that's interesting. It's one thing I have noticed about the migration I th is the snows are pushing this way. I'm wondering if it's because they've changed their feeding habits, because back in the... 60s and 70s and 80s the snows all were on the texas coast now they're in arkansas yeah. a lot of them and not, not near as many on the texas coast as they used to be and the speckle yeah. bellies are i mean we've always had specks here but the numbers have just increased 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 and i think the speck population is on such a, a upward kick and because they're shooting in illinois and stuff now and they yeah. used to not have them there either i think they're just expanding mm -hmm. because there's more of them yeah do you think they can expand around pressure Ooh, that's a that's a good question. Um, I I think so. I think I think if you bang them for so long, I think I think they just kind of start 
maybe pushing one way or another, and then, you know, if they – I kind of wondered that. Yeah, I mean, I'm trying to – I don't know. I think that's just the over, their overall numbers. We shoot the shit out of them here, and we don't we haven't lost any specs at all. Well, no, we got we we still got a lot of specs, but we've picked up more of them. Mm, but I don't know, like a whole a whole fly. That's interesting. That's interesting to think about. Well, I don't know. I think it's weather related more than anything, and crop related. But I just think the spec yeah. numbers have just growing like crazy. And you take a a flock of birds with some young birds in it, and they go a different direction, and it imprints on all the new birds, and they go back there the next year, and then after a two- or three-year period, they just start growing and growing and growing in that population. You know, the other thing I thought about is, it's kind of wacky, but you think they could end up different different places, you know, east and west, wherever, on their flight down on migration days due to the jet stream? Yes. Like, what direction it's blowing, they're going to end up here. Obviously, I think they ride that, don't they? Yes. I think, I think storms dictate a lot part? of that. Yeah. Yeah, I think so, too, because you notice a lot of times, like, if the jet stream, for us at least, if the jet stream goes east, like, it, it, a lot of times it's not, a, it's not as big of a migration day as it could be if it was just, like, straight down the center of the, center of the nation. Yeah, that's fascinating shit. I love it. Yeah, I mean, it's truly, but that, that pressure thing is a real, it's, a, it's an interesting thing. I saw a, a bird that had a neck collar. I saw the telemetry on it that from last year, and it was a bird that was in our area. Matter of fact, I think it was banded. It was, they put their collar on them here. And that bird went to Arkansas, back to Knox City area, up to Kansas, up to South Dakota, into Saskatchewan, and then went to Alaska. Now, why would that bird not just go from here Across Colorado, you know, fly right that way to go. But it took that that pattern to get to Alaska. Mm-hmm. I mean, they, they, they fly higher than the mountains, so it's not like they're trying to avoid the mountains. Mm-hmm. Path of least resistance, I guess. I, but I don't know why. I mean, Yeah, the, the mountain ranges is a fascinating thing, too. You know, we have a big mountain range just west of us, and if you go over the other side of that mountain, there isn't shit for waterfowl. Really? Nothing. That's no. crazy. The western half of Montana, good luck. So I wonder if it does act like a physical barrier to them. I think it does. Is there crops there, over I mean, there? There's a vast difference between if you if you're in Bozeman, uh, Bozeman here, Butte, sixty miles west. There's nothing. Nothing. Is nothing. there is there crops over there? Yeah. So the same crops oh, yeah. and everything. Yeah, it's the Continental Divide runs north and south right across the top as you dump into into Butte, and it, like there's nothing. Yeah, over there. So like Kalispell, uh, Kalispell, however you say that, Missoula. Yep. There's no birds Missoula, there. Missoula, Kalispell. I mean, there's a few, but it's not. I mean, you're not going to drive there and hunt. Right. You know. See that? That's that's the way it is. Uh, when I hunted in uh, Colorado, everybody knows where I hunt in Colorado, but it's it's between two mountain ranges, and there's not just mm-hmm. a ton of birds there. There's a there, evidently there's a banding program somewhere close, but. I don't know how many birds filter in there, but it's yeah. between two mountain ranges. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it either funnels them through or funnels them around. Yeah. Huh. It's interesting how that goes. So Ted Wells is just stumping mm-hmm. us today. Yeah. So, Ted, where are, you, where, where are you off to this winter taking pictures at? Any cool places, any new destinations? Yeah, yeah. We're uh, 
going back up to Saskatchewan with Quack Rack here in, gosh, a couple weeks. And then we're still figuring out what to do in November. I'd like to go down and visit the boys at Falco. We have an invite to go there, but trying to figure that out yet. We'll either do that or Arkansas. And then the boys will come back up here in December. And then I'll go down to 737 in January. Oh, those are good people. Yep. Saskatchewan ought to be good in a couple. Well, I mean, it's obviously good. right? I think a lot of guys are shooting some local birds in Saskatchewan, but with this cold uh-huh. weather moving through, it ought to it ought, you ought to be timing it just just about right to. Yeah, see I mean, I'm going to green the ducks up a little bit at least. Yeah. How long will you be in Saskatchewan for? Uh, five days. So is that is that kind of the the max that you'll try to be gone, or will you go longer than that? I try to keep it reasonable, honestly, with my wife working full-time and one kid in school and one kid in kind of a spotty daycare schedule. I try to, you know, schedule around or, you know, at least have a three three to five-day window where, you know, far enough in advance where we can plan for it. Right. You know, it's tough. It's tough for me anymore to just take a a quick trip on a whim. (laughs) Yeah, you got to have those uh, brownie points saved up for those, those type of deals. Well, I try. I try to run as many as I can in the off season, but it turns out I like to do other shit too. So it's like hard to. <laughs> yeah, but. it's hard to save them just for waterfowl season when you got other things you like to do during the spring and summer. Yeah, I definitely try to. I try to, but yeah. a lot of times it's not easy. I'm 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 right there with you. So about three to five days. How many How many SD cards will you burn through in three to five days? Uh, I'll shoot five to six thousand pictures probably. Whew. It depends. In Canada, you know, Canada's a longer, longer day shoots, really. I mean, there's more to shoot up there. You know, the, the Texas teal thing's tough for me because, I mean, as far as the hunt goes, you're, oh, if you got two hours and then you're done. Well, and, and you're not going back out. And they, they'll bombard you from any direction. I couldn't right. imagine trying to photograph a teal. It's hard enough calling the shot on the little bastards. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I focus more on the, on the hunting with your buddies and the lifestyle and the yes. black rack product and things like that on that hunt for sure. But the Canada hunt, a lot more target rich environment for photos. Yeah. Cause you're hunting twice a day. You're generally killing a decent number of birds. You do that for four days straight and you're like, Jesus, I got so many photos here. It's ridiculous. So how do you go through, how do you go through it? Like, do you just, which ones do you eliminate? Cause I mean, at, at your, you know, at your level, I got to imagine that you're not getting a whole lot of just duds. Uh, yeah, I I don't get a whole lot of duds per se. Yeah, I mean, some stuff's got to focus, whatever, if I'm just ripping on stuff. But I'll dump the whole card onto the computer just so I don't lose anything I took. And then I'll go through and kind of rank them uh, like a star system. So I'll do, you know, like three stars if I if it's usable but it's not a banger and then i'll do all my five stars which is like the good shit yeah and then i'll go back through and edit all those starred ones kind of keep them organized like that uh, did your head just well, go I don't silly? Edit everything, but did your head just go yeah, silly after about five you know and you're yeah. in, you're on picture three thousand and you still got two thousand to go or are you just like fuck i need a break yeah it takes i mean i i have a hard time sitting down for more than two hours at a time and and that's what, you know, some people don't realize is that it's a shitload of work to do, I can imagine. you know, higher level editing, right? It's not hit the auto button and slide some shit around and things happen, <laughs> you know. So. 
How long will you work on a picture before you're just like, fuck it, this is as good as it's going to get, or fuck it, I, I can't use it? How long will you spend on it? Um, Not very long. You know, I've developed a bunch of presets in my Lightroom, so I can apply a preset to a photo based on the light, and then I can tweak from there. So it's not too bad, really. I can crank through, I don't know. Like, I shot Brady Davis. I don't know if you guys follow Brady. He's a good friend of mine. lives here in Bozeman. Yes. I shot his family photos last night. Uh-huh. And I think I sent him 91 edits, and I it only took me 30 minutes. Oh, wow. Probably. That's not bad at all. 45 minutes. Yeah, it's not bad. I got a marketing question for you. Yeah. You do the palette design pictures? Uh, yeah, so I helped. Uh, actually, the owner of that company's name is Caleb Benson. So I helped him kind of get that off the ground when I lived in Billings. Can you do that in the state of Texas design? Oh, yeah. Give a give him tell people where they can get a hold of that. I think that's a really neat deal. It is, yeah. He's doing really well with it. I catch I catch up with him once in a while. There's another guy in town here in Bozeman actually that lives not too far from me that's doing the same thing. I don't know how detailed he is and how good he is, but he's doing essentially the same stuff. So how does that work? Is it a, is it a laser cutter? What do they? How do they? How do they get that detail? Um, yeah, so you just set up set up your base, whatever your outline is or square or whatever, and you get it sanded down super, super fine. And then you apply a coat of like a gloss epoxy to it, basically, and let that dry, and that makes it sticky. And then you just print your photo on like a art grade 3M vinyl, and you just stick it on and cut it out. Huh. How do they do the cutout? Is it an exacto knife? Do what? You have, like an exacto knife, you have to just orient the photo how you want it to end up and stick it and then cut around the shape. Huh. That's pretty neat. People need to go look at it. It's pretty, it, on, pretty straightforward, really. On Ted's I mean, Inst- you could do it yourself, for sure. On Ted's Instagram, he's got, um, and what's your Instagram? T-Wells Image? Yes, sir. And you go on T-Wells Image, and he's got, go down his photos, and he's got pictures of uh, some ducks. A mallard on a Montana cutout on a pallet, and he's got a big bunch of mallards that are in some trees. On just really cool shit. I need. I'm gonna get one with the Texas for the lodge. That's pretty badass. Um, yeah. Also, notice on your uh, on your pictures, you got a bunch of are those German shepherds? Uh, those are Mal- uh, Belgian Malinois. So that's a uh, um, kennel. Uh, the owners of the kennel actually live in my neighborhood. But they have a big ranch, training ranch in Livingston, and they. Uh, breed, raise, and train family protection dogs, and they're fascinating. So I've been doing their social media and content for the last, I guess I just signed my third year with them. So this is year three. And they're so damn, I mean, you think about, you know, like the best lab you've ever been around, right? You know, which we have a respect for. It's a different kind of dog. But many things are like humans compared to that as far as what they can do. Really? It's unbelievable. The, the the picture that you have of the two dogs with the American flag is an awesome pick. So, what oh, yeah. what are those what are those dogs run fifteen thousand ten thousand dollars? Uh, eighty eighty thousand dollars. Jesus, Woo. Yeah, motherfucker, better be like a human. Holy wow! <laughs> what? Jeez. Yeah, they're uh, eighty thousand well, I mean, dollars. Break it down over the working life of the dog. Uh huh. So they they're twelve year working life. So break that down by the year really not that bad for family protection so so they they teach them 
to kill. To kill, basically. <laughs> Do you ever get like an eerie feeling, like when you're work when you're around these dogs, or are they pretty well no, cool? Not at all. They're not. I mean, they're not killers at all. I mean, they're the coolest family dog you could ever have. Like uh-huh. you don't even know they're around. They'll. I mean, I've had several of them in my house. I, my neighbor has one, so I dog sit for her quite a bit. And uh, I think there's a picture on my Instagram. Or, no, it's on Solomon's Instagram of one of the dogs laying in my daughter's bed, and she's just hanging out. I mean, they'll lick your kid's face. They're super sweet dogs. It's just they're always ready. If shit comes to shove, somebody walks in your house that has an intent to hurt you, the dog will automatically take care of it. So how do they – okay, so so say, uh, you know, me and the kids are roughhousing. Not an issue around yeah. these dogs? Nope. Nope, different kind of pheromone. So they actually can sense pheromones. Huh. And they take all their commands in Dutch. Right. Yeah, not very many Dutch are breaking so. into people's houses, so you're pretty safe there. <laughs> yeah, it's a different, you know, the trainers, a handful of the trainers are, are you know, trained to actually get mad. Mm-hmm. It sounds weird. Mm-hmm. But, you know, there's a certain pheromone you give off and a certain feel about you when you're actually pissed off right right I mean, you feel different when you're actually mad versus just roughhousing with your kids you're not mad uh-huh. you know when you get that feeling and the intent that you actually want to hurt somebody it's different and that's what the dog can sense huh so like if your mom was bitching at me andy <laughs> and i was getting pissed off yeah. at her they'd <laughs> jump on her ass <laughs> that dog would uh, <laughs> get right. some mixed signals here that they're, no man they're they're amazingly athletic i mean the, the shit that i've seen those dogs do is just like I mean, they'll jump clean over a 12-foot wall, come off the other side, and jump right on a guy in a bite suit. It's like, holy cow. So you've seen these, you've seen them in action, biting shit. Oh, yeah. Is it oh, fer- yeah. ferocious? It's pretty badass. <laughs> these are the same dogs the military uses a lot of times, aren't like on the SEAL teams, right? Yeah, there are a handful of fallen breeds in the active right now. That's awesome. And, I mean, they're just super athletic, just crazy athletes jumping, running. Yeah. it's it, You'd have to see it. It's nuts. There is nothing more intimidating than a damn German shepherd, a big one. We hunt in Oklahoma, and there's a family that's got, that has one, and this some bitches will, will eat your leg off of you. And if he's – they've got a kennel on the front porch that they keep him in, and – and he also a house dog. If he ain't in that kennel, I ain't going to go knock on the freaking door. Yeah. I mean, he would eat your yeah, ass. Yeah, no, these, these swollen dogs are different. They're not – they look intimidating for sure. Yes. <clears throat> but they're not. I mean, if you're just, you know, a passerby and you're a normal dude, they just won't pay any mind to you whatsoever. They don't pay any mind to any other dog. You don't have to tell them to leave it. You don't have to tell them no. You don't have to have them on a lead. They'll just chill. How long? How long Great. does it take them to to finish a dog? Uh, they won't sell a dog till it's at least two years old. Oh, and they start training so on has, how yep, old? At six weeks, so it has over two thousand hours into it before it's ready. Wow, at least two thousand hours. And they're not selling these dogs in the thrifty nickel either. <laughs> no, I mean no, they're not. They're not listed in thrifty nickel. Last <laughs> I saw, there weren't. <laughs> but. <laughs> but, you know, it's pretty amazing the people that buy them. I mean, there's a there's a long list of celebrity clientele that I can't name that own them, and you know, and even like the normal family people, you know, see the investment and and you know feel it's a good investment, and I mean, it's crazy. Anybody from normal dudes like us all the way up to multi 
you know, there's a shitload of those dogs in Texas, the oil guys, right? Yeah. And it seems like they take dogs down to Houston and Dallas every month. Yeah, if, if, if you live on the south side of Chicago and you need to knock up your defenses a little bit, this is what you need to buy. Right, yeah, absolutely. So were they trained to just attack, or will they, like, if, if somebody's trying to get in the, the window, will they bark first? Yeah, they'll always bark first. They'll always give kind of a warning type deal. Um, but, you know, the most fascinating thing about them, the thing that I find the most fascinating is watching them clear a house. Like, if you roll up to your front door and you've been gone all day or whatever and you got your dog with you, you can open the door, command them to clear the house. They'll clear every room in your house and come right back down on place right in front of you. Wow. And let you know it's okay. Wow. That's nuts. That's insane. Great. That's like a, it's, so, like, it's like a little human with four legs. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's so cool. Well, I still have a sticker shock when you told me $80,000. I was like, <laughs> son of a bitch. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they're you know they've got thirteen full time trainers. They're on a two hundred acre, extremely nice ranch. There's like fifty dogs on the ground right now. I mean, so it's I mean it's not cheap to raise one of these dogs. No, and no, train them. no, no. I'm not saying the price is so too much. I was just shocked right, at 80, right. thinking about eighty thousand dollars for a dog. I think shit. Right. Yeah. That's that's kind of the normal reaction when you tell somebody that, but. So do they have a normal guy that's like, all right, put on the bite suit. It's it's your turn today. Do they take turns, or is it just one guy like, oh, you're getting fucked up all day, every day? And there's two of them that get fucked up all day, every day. <laughs> <laughs> what do you do for a yeah. living? I'm a bite toy for a fucking dog. Yeah, I'm a chew toy for these. <laughs> Canine trainer. <laughs> yeah, you gotta you gotta sweep that up at the bar. You can't you can't tell them what you really do. I'm a canine trainer. Boy, I bet right, that right. I bet them some I bet they're sore shit every day. Oh, God yeah. mighty. Like a linebacker. Yeah, there's a couple. There's a couple of ex seals, veterans that are out now that are working out there. And you know, the other thing that's fascinating is most of the trainers are women. I can see that, which is really cool. Yeah, they don't put up with shit. And uh, yeah, you know, the idea behind that is, you know, a lot of these families that are getting these, the the woman is a stay at home mom or whatever, and they want the you know the dog to be able to be handled by a woman. So a lot of these dogs have been trained by women all the way up. Well, huh. It's really cool. I wonder if all dogs can kind of sense that pheromone because a lot of times in training, just a regular lab, like it can sense if something is wrong. So like if you've had a for good sure. day or a bad day, you know, it yep. always seems to carry over. I think they're for sure. Yeah, I agree with you. <clears throat> Thanks for leaving me hanging there. Well, Jeff, you know, sometimes you just got to pull the old ripcord on some of your <laughs> shit, and that's one of them. That is one of them we're not going to touch. Oh, man. Because <laughs> I've noticed that, you know, just training my lab, uh, it, it always seemed whatever kind of day I was having, that was the kind of training session that we'd have. If it was a shitty day and a right. lot of stuff going on, well, guess right. who seems scatterbrained during the training session? The fucking dog. Yep. And, and you said that before. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure you have. You can tell by looking at your dog that you've done a lot of training this summer. Mm-hmm. Well, I've had a lot of bad days, and I didn't want to transfer <laughs> over, Jeff. <laughs> Andy's dogs gained about 35 pounds this summer. Mm. You know, you can do what you can do. So, do do any photo fo- on your Instagram? Do you ever have one just off of your iPhone or anything that you're like, you know what, fuck it, that's a good picture, put it up there? Or are they all professionally uh, done? On my account. Yep. 
Those are all mine. I've never put anybody else's photo up. No, 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 no. Do you ever just like snap one with your iPhone and it's like, ah, you know what? That's a good one. I'll put that up instead of just this highly no, edited. I, I haven't done that. No, I, maybe early on in that account. I, there might be a couple, but no, not in the last, gosh, at least three years. It's all DSLR. Yeah, I yeah, mean, I, mean I, have, I have some nice photos from an iPhone, but it's like, meh. I'll put it up in the story and things, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, you know, I'm not up to your level with the, uh, with the camera. So most of my shit's just, and it's like dead pile pics and stuff like that. So like, that's not hard to, that's not hard to capture on the iPhone. Right. I get by. So what, what camera are you running? Uh, I have a few. My primary is a Nikon D5. That's kind of my go-to. And then I have a D850 and a D750. Mm. You spoke Japanese to me, but it sounds like they're really, really cool. I knew when you asked that you didn't have a clue D5 what you were going to get. Dog. Do what? D five is the D five is the big the big dog. That's the one. That's the, the one big, that you like big, so much. Big pro body. That's my that's my favorite. Now, how does how does it handle the cold? So you're up in Montana. Do, do you carry a lot of batteries, or, or they handle it okay? Uh, no, it's it's awesome, and then that's that's one of the main reasons why I don't shoot mirrorless cameras like the Sony's and things. Just because of the weather that I, that we're hunting in up here, for the most part, is pretty foul. You know when shit gets good. Yeah. And uh, you know that I've always been an icon guy. Um, you know, one of my biggest mentors in this whole thing, Lee Chose, has always been an icon guy. And uh, <clears throat> that's just what I learned. You know, and, and I had to have a hell of a time switching. I'd lose my ass if I tried to switch. Just because the yeah, too much the, into it. Just because the the commands and stuff are different on different cameras, or how would you lose your ass? Oh, just getting rid of the stuff I have right now. Oh, and trying to buy new. Right, just your whole setup. With all this high end Nikon stuff, you know, the resale value on it's not impressive. You know, say a six thousand dollar two hundred f two, you're going to get two grand twenty two hundred for it. Yeah, and it's like Jesus to replace it. You can't. So your pot committed on Nikon. How did you and Lee get hooked up? Did, did you reach out to him uh, when you first started, or, or did you meet him some other way? Uh, Lee and I met first in Saskatchewan, Spring Snows. Gosh, I guess that was three years ago, up at Curly Tail, Angie Erickson's place up there. Uh-huh. We hunted together for four or five days, and that was, you know, when I was really getting serious about this, it's, you know, that's... The, Lee's the fucking guy, right? Yes. You know, so it's like I tried to learn everything I possibly could at that point, and I still do the same thing with me. And, and we, you know, we've kept in touch since and become friends and um, spent a little time this last spring together out in Maryland on a shoot for Finale, which is pretty cool. He was photographing me, which was kind of neat. <laughs> I was the model, which is <laughs> super weird. That's pretty cool, um, though. But, yeah, no, you know, I've always been – been close and anytime i have a question i ping it over and he's always quick to help however he can and it's been a great relationship for me for sure has he ever hurt your feelings like nah it's fucking garbage you've been working on something he's like ah it's fucking garbage dump it yeah he's honest for sure is that a blow to the gut no no i don't think so i don't take it that way i mean anytime you get a a comment like that from the man and then you get a compliment yeah you know it's like you gotta, you gotta balance that. Right. Well, you know the compliment's genuine. Then, like, if he tells you something's right. garbage, and then he's like, "But this, like, seriously, this is amazing." 
That compliments yeah. even yeah. better. Yep, yep. And he and Matthew and Luke, uh, Matthew Cagle from Rigor Night, and then Luke, his son, came up not last December, December before. And we shot all the Optifade Rigamrite deer that have you know, been out for a couple of years now, but pre that coming out, we shot all those ads together, which is really kind of cool to watch him shoot an actual ad. Because when we were hunting together in Saskatchewan, he wasn't shooting. Right. I was actually photographing the trip for Sitka gear. So Lee just kind of, I mean, he hunted, and he's a freaking killer, man. Holy cow. <laughs> that dude can shoot. Yeah. I've heard. So, I've heard he's a good shot. Yeah. So I mean, he's a he's a magician. So how do you get started? What what do you do? You just take as many free fo- for for a guy that's wanting to do what you do. Do you just take as many free photographs as you can and get them in the hands of of all the companies? Do you focus in on one company and 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 photograph their product in an interesting way, or how do how would Ted Wells start over if he had to? Man, that would be really hard to start over. You know, with where there's so many photographers now that are really good. And so I think it comes down to building yourself a network, you know, of people within brands and create relationships with them. And then, you know, when you do get an opportunity to shoot for money, over-deliver like crazy, right? I mean, produce your best work and a lot of it. And, you know, say if, if you have deliverables, exceed deliverables. Do more than you're asked to do. Yeah. And that's what I've always done. And it's always done well for me. And I think, you know, I think where a lot of guys go wrong, especially now, is they commit to things that they can't do. It makes all of us look bad. Like what? what what's an example of that? Like, for instance, committing to doing video for a brand without ever shooting video before. Oh, okay. Let the video guy do that, right? Right. Like, stay in your lane. Yeah. So. Because the two don't transfer over necessarily. Like, just because you're a good photographer doesn't mean that you're going to automatically be a good videographer. Yeah, no, it's different. I mean, you can see things as a photographer and shoot it on video, right? You know, what what really sets people apart is the post-production, the editing. is like a whole different world, right? It's totally different. Yeah. You, and it's different equipment, you know, and you need stabilizers and all this other shit to make it look pretty. And it's like, I just want to shoot pictures. <laughs> do you think that's one of those deals like so many guys are out there trying to make a name for themselves and they're just like, I'll, I'll fake it until I make it type of deal? I think there's a good a, a good degree of that going on for sure. And, you know, sometimes it works if you can stay on the grind long enough and and not screw it up too bad. Yeah. You know, I, I mean, I hate to say it that way, but. I mean, surely that's happening. Yeah. I wonder uh, how many, like, flubs you get in your industry. Like like you were talking about, you know, if, if, if somebody over-promises and under-delivers, how many do-overs do you get in your industry before not, you're, like, blackballed? Not very many. No, you're blackballed real quick. Because, I mean, these companies, uh, they talk to one another. Yeah, everything's so small, so tight-knit. You don't have room for error when it comes to shit like that. You can't screw up. Yeah, because you won't get hired again. That that's one thing that I've noticed about the, you know everybody wants to imagine this waterfowl industry being, you know there there's a lot of companies, but it is a small as many companies as there is. It is a small market of people. Oh, it's tiny. 
and doing this Everybody podcast talks. and doing this podcast, yeah. like I realize how small the industry. I've always been told that, but like it is insane how incredibly small and tight knit sure. this market actually is. Yep, absolutely. So if you're listening to this and you're a young photographer, don't fuck up those opportunities because you're not going to get many yep. more. Yeah, you got to follow the three rules of life. And this is something that Jim Sabier, he's the waterfowl product designer over at Sitka. Um, when Jim first got to town, when I lived in Bozeman, or Billings, he and Dennis Zuck, who was the whitetail guy at that time, left and did a stint at Yeti Coolers. Now he's back at Sitka. He and Jim drove over to Billings and hunted with me and my buddy Nick Bowers and a couple other guys. Anyways, late season, it was a smash fest. Anyways, that's where my relationship with Jim started, gosh, say, six years ago or more. And Jim and I have been close since that day. He lives, I mean, I'm looking out my bedroom window and I can see his house. He lives right across the field from me. So we spent a lot of time together. And, you know, I've always used him as as a, a mentor and consulted with him on things and, you know, whatever I can do. Because he is one of the greatest human beings on the face of the earth. Everybody loves Jim Sapir. Mm-hmm. And so he came up with these three rules of life. <clears throat> and if you follow these three rules, you'll never fuck up. Rule number one, don't be a dumbass. <laughs> and that, that applies to everything. Yes, sir. <laughs> it sure the does. vague rule on the world. Right? Number two, humble and modest. Yeah. You're not the best at everything. You're not the best at anything, right? Yep. Humble and modest. Yep. Number three, over-deliver. You'll never fail. That's right. That's awesome. That, it covers it, your entire true. life. Yeah, pretty much. Just don't be a dumbass. Anything you do. Be humble and modest and over-deliver. The recipe You'll for success. Fail. The recipe for success. Yep. Who, who would have ever thought? There it is. You heard oh, it here. You heard it here. <laughs> and it's so simple, except for being the dumbass part, because I think that just comes naturally from a lot of guys. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I've been a dumbass before lots of times. <laughs> We all have. Yeah. You you look at some of these kids and you're like, you just can't help but be a dumbass. We had a kid work for us last year, and it's just like, you honestly cannot get out of your own way and not be a dumbass for three days. Right. But it is what it is. They'll figure it out or they won't. That's true. Ted, man, I have uh, I have enjoyed this podcast. I've enjoyed uh, I've enjoyed the three rules for life. I'm gonna I'm gonna steal that. It's all yours. <laughs> We appreciate you being on here, Ted. We hope you have a great, great, great season this year. Uh, awesome. If you, anything we can do for Thanks, us, if guys. you ever get down this way and you want to come shoot some picks and hunt with us, just holler at us. You're always welcome. Absolutely. would love to. Anytime. Open appreciate invitation. you guys having me on. You bet. Open invitation anytime you ever want to get down here. Same for you. Come north. Yes, sir. All right, man. Well, you, uh, you have a safe trip to Saskatchewan in the next couple weeks, and uh, we'll be looking for you on Instagram. Love seeing your stuff, man. All right, guys. Appreciate you. See ya. Thank you. Ted Wells, a genius. Three rules for life. $80,000 dog. I still can't get over that. I'm still in ticker ticker shock. It makes sense, though. For what you're getting. Yeah, it really does. I mean, if if you've got millions and millions of dollars. Yeah, what's $80,000? Because you're not not spending $80,000 on dog if you're you're making $80,000 a year. Nope. But a dog like that makes your family. When you you see the the in the movies and they've got this quizzical dog that sits around the family that's the dog yes one that's just chilling over there in the corner that'll eat your arm off
that nobody's messing with. $80,000 dog. I still can't get over that. But, you know. You can buy a racehorse for that much. All it takes is one time it's saving your life, and you're like, it was worth every penny. Oh, there's no doubt about it. Every penny. And when he was talking about, you know, there's guys in Texas, I'm thinking, I'm rich oil guys are going to one-up each oh, other. Yeah. I got an $80,000 dog. Sure. Absolutely. Anyways, I appreciate everybody listening. Uh, season's getting around the corner here. Guys up north are opening up this weekend, I, I believe, in most places. So, hope you kill them. Hope we get this front. It's supposed to be a good front next week. So, next week we should be – in fact, I saw the frost line is going to be almost to Missouri. Yeah. We'll start uh, – we'll get back up with the migration report and all that other stuff whenever shit starts migrating. So, um, I've had some guys asking me about that, and I'm like, it's five, it's 95 degrees. There's there's nothing migrating. No. There's no report. The nothing. report is everything is where it's been for the last couple months. So Been a hot, miserable th- last 30 days for most people. All right, thank y'all. God bless y'all, and have a great week.